Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and open to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be together this morning. If you're a guest with us today, I'm so glad that you've decided to worship with us. One of the things that we do at Moberly each and every week is we take God's Word, we open up the Bible, and we walk through a passage of Scripture. One of our values as a church is the value of biblical truth. And uh, we believe in that there is a category called truth, that there is truth, and uh, that's a real thing. I know our culture uh, doesn't believe that right now, but there is actual truth, and truth is not what I define it as or what you define it as, but truth is truth as God defines it. And we know how God defines truth according to the Bible, and so we value Scripture And that's why we take significant time each and every week to open it up, to pay attention to it, to listen to what the Lord has for us, uh, because we believe that uh, what matters most is not what a pastor says or think, what you say or think, it's what God says, and we know that through His Word. Amen? Amen. And so we're in Colossians chapter 3, which really begins the third and final major section of the book of Colossians. The first section of Colossians is in Colossians chapter 1 which is where Paul describes a colossal truth that Jesus is Lord of all, that He is supreme over all things in heaven and on earth, that He has rule and He has reign, that He has preeminence and priority, that He has supremacy and superiority, that He is Lord over all of creation, and that we ought to build our lives upon Him. That's what Colossians 1 is all about. The second section is in Colossians 2 where Paul begins to address uh, head-on colossal error. There was a false teaching that had emerged in the church at Colossae that sought to detract from who Jesus actually is, that sought to diminish Him, to give Him a place but not the supreme place. And Paul writes in Colossians 2 to say, don't be lured away by any ideology or worldview that seeks to diminish Christ. That would be a colossal mistake. Then chapter 3 and 4 is the the third and final section of the letter to the Colossians where Paul begins now to describe what it would look like for us to build our lives on Christ and experience colossal growth in our relationship with Jesus. So that's what 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4 are all about, what it looks like to build your life on this truth that Jesus is Lord and the fruit that that would begin to bear in your life, how that would begin to grow you in your relationship with Jesus. You know, I, I love uh, coffee a lot. Anybody else? Can I get a witness on coffee? All right, there's, Lucas has got one right in his hand right now, um, especially this time of morning. Coffee is a great gift from God. But I was not allowed to drink coffee as a child because I was told that if you drank coffee, it would, it would what? Stunt your growth, right? Yeah, so we didn't want anything to stunt, to stunt your growth. And that's true in our relationship with Jesus as well. We don't want anything to stunt our growth. We want to grow and to bear fruit for Him. And that's what Paul has actually been weaving throughout this entire letter. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6 and verse 10, he talks about the gospel bearing fruit and growing in our lives. In chapter 2 and verse 7, he talks about um, rooting ourselves in Christ. That's an agricultural metaphor that, the, that we ought to be rooted in Christ, that we ought to draw up nourishment from Christ, and that we ought to bear fruit for Christ. Well, that's what chapters 3 and 4 are all about. Chapters 3 and 4 describe what it looks like to bear fruit for Christ, what Christian growth actually looks like in my inner life, in my family life, in my church life, in my work life, in my witnessing life. And so that's what 3 and 4 just 
begins to show all of the different areas of our life when, it, when it's touched by the Lordship of Jesus, how it begins to bear fruit for God's glory. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, is which we're going to look at this morning, begins this section. And Paul is describing here how it is that Christian growth takes place. Where we've just ended in chapter 2, Paul says, growth does not take place in our lives through conformity to a certain set of legalistic standards. That's not what drives growth. Instead, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul's going to say, we grow when we really understand what Christ has done for us and in us and who we are in Christ. That's, that's what motivates our growth. We begin to grow not because of legalistic expectations or rule-keeping or something like that, but because we really understand what it is that Jesus has done for us and in us and who we are in Christ. That's how we grow. And that's what chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 is all about. So let's read the text together, and then I'm going to walk through it verse by verse. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. All God's people said, Amen. Isn't this a wonderful passage of Scripture? Paul begins this text with an assumption. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. He's assuming here that his audience, that the church at Colossae is full of people who actually have been raised with Christ, that they understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, you have died with Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. And Paul says, before I give you any kind of instruction uh, related to Christian growth, I'm assuming here that you understand the basics, that you have actually come to the point in your life where your old life has died and you've been raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. Now listen, that idea of death and resurrection is a great way of talking about what it means to be a Christian. It's a great way of talking about conversion, because to be a Christian, to really know Christ, let me just say there's a difference here between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ, right? I can know about the president. I don't know the president. And you can know about Jesus without knowing Jesus. In fact, you know, Satan knows a lot about Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He knows Jesus is the agent of creation. He knows Jesus is Lord of all. He knows Jesus is the Redeemer. In fact, I, I imagine that Satan could go to any number of seminaries and take a theological examination and ace the test. So you can know a lot about Jesus without knowing Jesus. To know Jesus means that not only you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, you have to believe that, but it also means that you have died and your old life has been put in the grave, and you've been raised to walk in newness of life with Jesus as the Lord of your life. That's really what it means to be a Christian. It's not just to fill your head with facts about Jesus, but it actually means there's been a death of your old self, and there's been a resurrection that has happened where God has given you a brand new life. And folks, that is about the best news that I can give to you today. Because it means that whoever you have been in your past, whatever you've done in your past, whatever 
brings you shame or guilt related to your past, because of Christ, that can be put in a grave and buried and never brought up again. Can I get a witness? Aren't you thankful for that? And, and to be a Christian means that there is a death to those things, that your old person is dead and gone, and that God creates a brand new person. And that's the good news of the gospel, that, that no matter what you've done or who you've been, that God can wipe your slate clean. He can give you a fresh start in life, that He can forgive your trespasses and sins, make you new, give you His Holy Spirit that allows you to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. And, and I don't want to assume that everyone who's here today has actually experienced that. And so I just want to take a moment and just give you some really good news that if you've never experienced that, you can. You can have your sins wiped clean. The Bible tells us that though our sins are like scarlet, God can wash them white as snow. And that we can have a brand new start in life. That no matter what you've done, God can make you new. It's what the Bible calls being born again. Having a new birth. It means you get to start over. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, I'm not preaching this text, but let me just read it to you. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says, when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. And He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. If you've never experienced that, don't leave today without nailing that down. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be made into a new person, and God can give you a brand new start. You say, Pastor, how do I get a hold of that? How do I experience that? Well, this is the way I teach my children. I just use the ABCs because it, it's easy to remember. You have to, A, admit that you're a sinner. That's where it begins. You have to acknowledge to God that you need Him, that your old life there's something broken about it, and you want it to be put in the grave, right? So to become a Christian starts with just telling God, I don't want my old life anymore. I'm admitting that I'm a sinner and that I need you. And then B, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he can make you new. And so you just tell God, God, I don't want my old life. I believe you can make me new. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead and that I can have a brand new start. And then C, you commit to follow Jesus. You, you say, Jesus, I'm tired of following that old way of life. I want you to be the king of my life. That's what it means for him to be Lord of all. And I want to build my life on you now. And you just call out to Jesus like that. You just say, I want to follow you. I want to, that's what the Bible calls repentance. It's turning from your sin, putting your trust in Jesus, and then Jesus becomes the, the, the one who's most important to you in your life. And so if you've never done that before, let me just tell you, today you can do that. At the end of this service, there will be people in the lobby. They're there every week. They're decision prayer partners. They wear a badge so you can identify them, and they would love to talk with you about how you can experience being raised to new life with Christ. But now, I want you to, to look back at the text, because that's the assumption that Paul makes. He's writing to people who've experienced that. I want to make sure you have had the chance to experience that. But now, Paul gives an instruction in verses 1 and 2. And this is really teaching the Colossians how to build your life on Christ, how to begin to grow as a Christian. And, and this, is, this is the instruction that he gives. Look, so if you've been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things above. Just underline that phrase. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things above. Underline that. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So there's two instructions that Paul gives here. He says, seek the things above. Set your minds on the things above. Seek and set, okay? Now, what's the difference between those two? Well, to seek the things above refers to your life's pursuit. What are you chasing after in your life? What are you seeking after in your life? What are you pursuing in your life? Uh, What are you hungry and thirsty for in life? Are you pursuing the things that this world has to offer? Are you chasing after all that this life says matters most? Or are you seeking after the things of Christ? Paul says to grow as a Christian, it begins with a changing of the things that you want. It means that you're no longer hungry and thirsty for the stuff of this world. But now you you begin to desire God more than the stuff of this world. You desire Christ and the things of Christ. You begin to pursue and chase after. Jesus put it in terms of someone who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. What are you hungry for? What are you thirsting for? What are you chasing after in your life? The stuff of this world is so easy to make our life's pursuit. It's the stuff we chase after, right? Health and wealth and fame and renown and power and family and relationships and significance. It's, it's what we chase after. And Paul says here, if you want to grow in Christ, it begins with chasing after the things of God, what A.W. Tozer calls following hard after God. I, I love to hunt. I grew up hunting with my dad. Uh, in southeast Texas, and the only kind of hunting that I knew growing up, to be honest, was a little bit boring. It, it was deer hunting in a deer stand. Now, can we just admit that can be a little boring from time to time? Anybody want to admit that? You know, because you climb up in a tree stand, you sit there for hours, and you're just waiting, if, and you got a feeder, a deer feeder, it throws corn out or whatever, and you just wait for that Bambi, you know, to kind of wander up, and then you pull a trigger, and that's it. And it's fine, but it's a little bit boring, let's just admit. I mean, it's mostly for nap time. We enjoy the naps out there as much as we enjoy actually pulling the trigger. But my my family and I, we moved to New Mexico a number of years ago. I was pastoring a church there, and I I had a chance to experience hunting of a different sort. I had the opportunity to do my first elk hunt. And and if you go elk hunting, it will ruin you on deer hunting, because in elk hunting, you're not in a stand. You get out, and you are stalking a 450-pound animal, and you're calling it, and you're chasing after it. And there, listen, folks, there is all the difference in the world between stalking and sitting when it comes to hunting. Okay, and I'll just tell you, there's all the difference in the world in your relationship with God between stalking and sitting, between just kind of sitting passively and expecting something's going to happen and getting out and hunting after God, chasing after God. That's what Paul is saying. You are to seek the things above. And then he says, set your mind on the things above. Now, if, if seeking deals with the heart, some translations even say give your heart to the things above, then setting your mind deals with the thoughts, right, the mind. It, it deals not with your life's pursuit, but with your life's preoccupation. Paul is saying, pursue the things of God and be preoccupied with the things of God. Fix your mind, focus your thoughts, 
Fill your mind with thoughts of God and the things of God. That's what it means to to set your mind on God. So let me ask you this. What do you think about? One translator says, give a large place in your thinking to the things above. Does Christ and the things of Christ, does does He occupy a large place in your thinking? So, So often, other things have a large place in my thinking. Earthly things, right? You might say, well, pastor, I don't want to be so heavenly minded that I'm not any earthly good. You ever heard that phrase? They're so heavenly minded. They were of no earthly good. Here's here's the deal. In 18 years of pastoring, I've never, ever, not one time met anyone who was so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. I have met people who were so earthly minded they were not of much heavenly good. Because their mind is occupied with all the stuff of this world. And Paul says, if you want to grow, you got to change your thinking. you got to fix your mind on Christ. Fill your mind with Christ. Focus your mind on Christ. You, you, one person said, you must not only seek heaven, but think heaven. And so when you daydream, when your mind wanders, does it wander to the things of this life, this world, or does it wander to the things of Christ? That's the instruction of Paul. Seek the things of Christ. Set your mind on the things of Christ. Now, just notice a couple of things about this, in, this command. Notice the intensity of it. Paul uses here a present active imperative in the Greek New Testament. This is what that means. It's an imperative. That means it's a command. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no other way around this. You can't just get to a walk with God accidentally. You've got to seek it. And, and this is a command. This is the, the only way. No, no one can do this for you. That's what it means for it to be an active command. It's not passive. It's not something that's done to you. It's, it's something you have to do. No one can want a walk with God for you. You've got to want it. No one can seek God for you. Listen, I'm sure all of us have moms who want us to seek God, but no matter how much our mama wants us to seek God, she can't seek God for me. She can't seek God for you. You've got to be the one to seek God. That's what it means for it to be active. And then it is in the present tense, so you would translate it like this. Seek and keep on seeking. Set your mind and keep on setting your mind. In other words, this is not a once and done thing. This is something that's continual, ongoing action. Jesus used the same language in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, ask, uh, seek, and knock. You remember that? Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. But he uses a present tense. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Be relentless. Continue to pursue. Pester God. How many of you have pestered God lately? You just keep after him. God, I, I want you like Jacob, right, who wrestles with God, where we say, God, I, I am following hard after you, and it's not going to be a once and done thing. It's not going to be an occasional thing. I'm going to seek you and keep on seeking you. I'm going to be relentless in my pursuit. I'm not going to stop. There's an intensity to this instruction, keep on seeking and setting. But notice also the emphasis of the instruction. Notice the emphasis of the the phrase, things above, things above. You notice it's repeated uh, twice here in in these two verses. Anytime you see an author repeat something like this, it's a way of emphasizing it. So, seek the things above. Set your mind on the things above. The other way that Paul emphasizes this here, it's a little strange, but in English, we, we have a very ordered sentence structure. We have subject, verb, direct object, right? So subject, I, 
Verb, want, direct object, ice cream. Okay? That's the structure of the sentence. The Greeks, somebody said, yes, Lord. Name it and claim it. Ice cream after, after church. Um, the Greeks don't care about that structure. They can move any part of the sentence to any other part. And often the way that an, an author will emphasize something is taking something and moving it to the front of the sentence. Do you know that that's exactly what Paul does in verses 1 and 2? He takes the phrase, things above, and he moves it to the beginning of the sentence. So if you translated it literally, this is how it would read. Things above, seek. Things above, set your mind. It's, it's way of, uh, Paul's way of sort of circling it or underlining it to say, this is what I'm trying to get you to, to get after, is the things above as contrasted with the things below, right? The things of this earth. He's saying there are two competing things out there for your love and for your attention and your focus. There's the stuff below, right? The things of this world that says, this is what really matters. And then there's the things above, the things that are associated with Christ. And Paul's saying, those are the things you ought to give your heart to. Those are the things you ought to set your mind upon. And what are the things above? Well, thank you for asking. Look right here in the text. The text tells us, seek the things above, verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And notice Paul's not focusing on all the questions that we would like to ask about heaven, like what's heaven like? He just says, the things above, that's where Jesus is. The reason you should seek the things above is because that's where Christ is. And notice he's seated at God's right hand. That phrase is very important. In Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110 talks about the Lord being seated at the right hand of God, where he is reigning over all things and his enemies are made his footstool. That's the language Paul is using right here, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He is ruling and reigning over all things. Murray J. Harris says that it means he is in the place of unrivaled prestige and unparalleled authority. That's where Christ is. Think about, Paul is saying, think about Jesus and where Jesus is. Think about the fact that he is ruling and reigning from God's right hand at the place of unrivaled prestige and unparalleled authority and give your life to Him and to the things that are associated with Him. Paul's saying, seek and set your mind on the things that are associated with Christ and with His rulership and His reign over all things. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33, seek first the, the what? The kingdom of God, right? The rulership of God, and his righteousness. That means your life begins to reflect his rulership. Seek his rulership and seek to live a life that reflects his rulership, which is righteousness. And then there's the promise. And all these things will be what? Added to you. What are these things talking about there? It's all the other stuff. All the other stuff that we tend to be focused on. All the things that we get preoccupied with. Jesus is saying, and he actually says this, folks. He says, listen, don't worry about your life. Because who among you can, by worrying about the stuff of this world, add a single inch to your height or a moment to your lifespan? In, instead, don't worry about the stuff of this world. Focus on Christ and His rule and reign, living a righteous life that reflects His rule and reign. And God's going to take care of the other stuff. Isn't that something to hope in today? 
that the things that we tend to worry about and be preoccupied and anxious about, God knows what you need. He knows what you need more than you know what you need. In fact, He knows what you actually need. We, we think we know what we need. He knows what we actually need. And not only does He know that we need that, He already has a plan to take care of those things and pro- provide for that. And, and who among us, by worrying or being anxious about those things, can even change anything, right? I wanted to be a professional baseball player when I was growing up. only thing I lacked was size, skill, and speed. Now, I remember growing up in high school, it's like, man, I wish I could be taller. You know, another foot taller, and I'll be the, you know, starting second baseman for the Houston Astros. And I weighed a buck nothing, you know? It's like, if I could just gain some weight, you know, and get muscles and stuff like that, you know, I could play. You know how much that worrying did for me? Nothing. Nothing. I didn't get any, didn't get any no more muscles, no more weight, no more height. Did nothing. Jesus is saying, don't worry about the stuff of this world. Seek me. Seek my kingdom. Seek my righteousness. Just trust that I've got the rest of it taken care of. But that's what Paul is saying here. Seek the things that are associated with Christ and His rule and reign. And just trust God with all of the other things. So what does it look like for, for me to seek the things above? Well, I love the way that verse 4 puts it. When Christ who is our life, look at that phrase. What does it mean to seek the things above? It means that Christ is your life. I've attended so many funerals over the years, hundreds of them, as a pastor, and it's, it's often that somebody at a funeral will say, you know, Bob loved fishing. Fishing was his life. Or Bob loved classic cars. He's working on that 68 Mustang. That car was his life. Or Bob really loved his career. He devoted everything to that job. His career was his life. Paul says to to begin to grow means you pursue and are preoccupied with Christ and things of Christ so that you can say, Christ is my life. You can take all this world. Give me Jesus. That's the instruction. Now, here's the motivation. Paul gives it, the last thing I want you to notice in the, in the text, verses 3 and 4, Paul gives a motivation for this instruction, right? And it's interesting, Paul's motivational strategy here. What could sustain this kind of continual seeking after Christ? Well, Paul could have used the motivational strategy of fear, like, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen to you. And fear can motivate, but that kind of motivation, right? We know in thermodynamics that heat turns to cool, energy dissipates. You can, you can motivate by fear momentarily, but eventually that, will, that, that won't last. He could have motivated by reward. If you do this, then this will happen. Paul does neither of those things. Instead, he motivates based on what Christ has already done for them and is doing in them and will do for them, and who they are in Christ. That's what Paul does. Notice, notice here in verses 3 and 4, I want you to notice Paul uses the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense to try to get the Colossians to understand what it is Christ has done for them, and that's the thing that's going to motivate their seeking Him. Look, look at the text. Let's just pay attention to the language here. Look at verse 3. He says, for you died. Quick question. Is that past, present, or future tense? Past, sharp crowd this morning. Past tense. That's right. You have died. That's something that has happened in the past. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. Is that past, present, or future? 
present. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is that past, present, or future? Future, right? So notice what he's doing. He's saying there's something true in your past, something true in your present, something that will be true in your future, all of which Christ has done. And if you really think about past, present, future, all that Christ has done, it's going to motivate you and sustain you as you seek the things above. Look, first of all, at the past. You have died. You have died. In verse 1, he says, you have been raised, right? So you've died, you've been raised. Here's what he's saying. Your old life is gone. Your old life that was so preoccupied with the stuff of this world, it's dead and gone. It's been buried. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. You now live the life of the age to come. So why be preoccupied with the things of the now, the things of this world, when Christ has put that old person to death? So think about that old person that loved the stuff of this world, dead and gone. So seek the things above. Now, present, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, consider what's true of you in this exact moment and allow that to motivate your seeking of Him. It is true right now that if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be hidden with Christ in God? Well, theologians are all over the map in terms of what this means. Some say that this refers to secrecy, that there's hidden delights in the presence of God. Some people say it's a reference to a believer's security, that there's a double protection. You are with Christ in God, and God shelters you. He hides you. I like that. Some say it's a reference to your identity, that your life is so embedded into the life of God, it's as if your life has become hidden. It's a reference to your union with Christ. This is now your identity in union with Christ. Some say that this is a reference to the atoning work of Christ, that in the way that Christ's blood shed on the cross covers our sin, we are hidden from the wrath of God because of the work of the Son. We are hidden from the, the judgment of God because of the work of Christ. I like that. Isn't that good? I think this passage could just simply mean that when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, to be hidden with Christ means that your life is simply wrapped up in Christ. In the same way that I'm wearing this coat, right, this coat, it, it hides me. It wraps me up. Paul is saying, you used to be wrapped up in the things of this world, and now you are wrapped up in Christ. You used to be uh, covered up in all the stuff of this life, but now your life is hidden and His life is visible, and that you are now wrapped up in the things associated with Christ. That's who you are now, so live like who you are. That's what Paul is saying here. Your life is hidden with Christ and God, so live like who you are. Become what God has already declared you to be. Seek the things above, because your life isn't visible anymore. Christ's life is visible. I am hidden in Him, wrapped up in Him. But now, there's one final thing that Paul says here in the text, and that is he, he refers to the future. You have died and been raised. You are hidden with Christ, but now look. And when Christ appears, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Paul is focusing the attention of the Colossians away from this present moment, which is where our minds and our hearts so often just stay. We just stay focused on what matters right now, right in front of me. And Paul says, look forward. 
Look to the future. Look to the fact that Jesus is going to return, that there's this glorious event that's going to happen, that Jesus is going to split the sky. He's going to come back. He's going to establish his forever rule on earth, and you're going to live in eternity with him. And there are some eternal things that matter more than this life. Paul is saying, don't live as if this life is all that there is. Don't live as if this life is all that matters. Remember that Jesus is coming back, that there is a life of the age to come, and it is glorious, right? And this is our hope, folks. Our hope is not just in the first appearing of Jesus, which we celebrate this month, but it is also in the second appearing of Jesus, that one day Jesus is going to come back and His glory will be put on open display. That glory that in some ways is hidden in the world right now, when Jesus comes back, will be revealed for all to see. And our hope is that Christ is returning, and not only that He's returning, but that when He appears, we'll appear with Him in glory, and that we will be seen as who we actually are in Christ. And and Paul is saying, think about that, and seek the things above. Live as if eternity matters. Live as if there is a life to come, which which means you're not going to be so caught up in the stuff of this world. You're going to live for the things that matter 10,000 years from now. You're going to live and invest your life and invest your time and invest your resources and invest your home and your family and your business, not in the stuff that's the now, but the stuff that is forever. And you're going to live your life in such a way, you're going to seek the things above in such a way that it will matter 10,000 years from now. If you invest your life only in the now, it may appear glorious right now. But when Christ comes back, it, it will be revealed that that was just a thin veneer on a shallow life. Amy and I just moved into a home the day before Thanksgiving, and we were putting together some furniture pieces, and I was putting together a wood, wood coffee table, what actually I thought was a wood coffee table. I built a wood coffee table, and then I sat on said coffee table to build another piece of something, and I realized that coffee table just, it's not wood. It actually just looks like it's wood, because as soon as I sat on it, I heard it crack, it was just a wood veneer. It, it looked great on the outside, but when, when pressure was applied, it cracked under the pressure. See, so many of us invest our life in the now, and it looks pretty good until the pressure of life caves in, and it will crack under that pressure and be revealed as what it is, a veneer. But the opposite is also true. If you live life for the things that matter 10,000 years from now, you live life for the things above, your life may appear pretty weak, pretty unglorious right now, but one day it will be seen for what it actually is. The the reality is if you live for Jesus today, your life might look poor, empty, unfortunate, but glory is on the way. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. Here, we have a full, if brief, description of the Christian's true status. With Christ, He has died, He has risen, and He will appear in glory. 
The Christian hopes not merely for the coming of the Lord, but for the full revelation of what he or she already is. Paul, the prisoner, an eccentric Jew to the Romans and a worse than Gentile traitor to the Jews, will be seen, will be seen as Paul, the apostle, the servant of the king. The Colossians, insignificant ex-pagans from a third-rate country town, will be seen in a glory which, if it were now to appear, one might be tempted to worship. This is how they are to regard their life. And on this foundation, they are to build genuine holiness and Christian maturity. That's what Paul is communicating in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Think about what Christ has done, is doing, and will do, and seek the things above. Amen? Now, I want to end the message today by just giving us one simple application today, one way to apply the truth of this text to our lives. Um, How do we seek the things above? Well, I want to give you a simple way, but an intentional way to do that in 2023. And I actually want to share with you a church-wide emphasis that we're going to have over the course of the next year. When you came in, you were given a little brochure that looks like this called the Homefront Initiative. You say, what is that all about? Well, I want to introduce you just for a couple of moments to a simple strategy to help you make Christ the center of your life beginning at home. Uh, Our desire at Moberly is that people will grow in Christ so that homes, neighborhoods, and nations are changed. But folks, that begins at home, and it begins with me. It begins with you. So so often we, we categorize our walk with Jesus as being a Sunday morning thing. And we just say, you know, I do the church thing on Sunday morning, that's it. But actually, if, if we're going to seek the things above, it's got to be an everyday thing and it's got to start at home. And so <clears throat> the Homefront Initiative is a simple way to challenge you to seek the things above and to make Christ the center in 2023. So over the next year, I'm going to be putting three challenges in front of you. And all of these are designed to help you seek the things above starting at home. Here's challenge number one. I'm challenging you today to a daily formation challenge. A daily formation challenge is a commitment that you make to a daily time in Scripture and prayer every day in 2023. I am challenging you to seek the things above, to make Christ the center, and to do a simple step, which is to say every day in 2023, I'm going to spend time in Scripture and in prayer. We're going to put a couple of resources in in your hands. We encourage you to go out and get two resources that will help you do this, okay? Number one is the Foundations New Testament Reading Plan. I'm telling this to you on December 4th because you'll have a little bit of time to go onto Amazon to get that resource and to start on January 1. Foundations Reading Plan is you read one chapter of the New Testament every day, and over the course of the year, you'll read the entire New Testament. Now, listen, you have Five days a week is the way the plan is built. You have two extra days because sometimes you miss a day. And so you have seven days to read five chapters. And just doing one chapter a day, you'll read through the entire New Testament beginning to end over the course of 2023. The other resource is by Jed Coppinger. It's called 21 Days to Childlike Prayer. Amy and I recently went through this book. It's one of the most simple, most helpful books to help kickstart your prayer life that I've read, and it's a 21-day process of of prayer. It's very simple. 
You can go on Amazon, get that book, and on January 8th, our entire church will be walking through this book together. We'll be focusing on 21 days of prayer that will help you, like I said, kickstart your prayer life so that every day in 2023, you can spend time with God. Now, listen, you can go to uh, moberly.org slash homefront. And we've got a page there that has these resources, or you can scan the QR code that's on your screen or on this card. It'll take you to that website, and you can find these resources, and you can also sign up and accept the challenge, okay? There's a button. You can click and accept the challenge. And what we'll do is we'll get your name, and we'll be able to send you encouragement and resources throughout the year to help you as you're spending that daily time with God. Now, challenge number two is the family devotional challenge. In the spring, for 12 weeks, we are going to be challenging you to have a family devotional once a week for three months, okay? March, April, and May. And we'll have resources available, again, on that website that'll help you know how to do this. But if you're married, we want you to do this with your spouse. If you have children, we want you to do it with your, with your, your children. If you're single, we want you to find somebody who's a member of your spiritual family, maybe a roommate or a friend from church, that you can have an intentional spiritual conversation one time a week for 12 weeks. Can you imagine how transformative it would be if we had families across our church who would commit to having an intentional spiritual conversation in the home once a week? Wouldn't that be awesome? That's going to be the challenge in the spring. There's going to be more information coming about that later. And then in the fall, we'll have our third and final challenge, and that's the marriage conversation challenge. This is for you married couples. If you're married in September, October, and November, 12 weeks, again, three months, we're going to encourage you and challenge you to have a once-a-week intentional conversation with your spouse about your marriage. And we're going to put a tool into your hand that will help guide that conversation because some of you are breaking out into cold sweats right now like, oh my gosh, how do I do this? Well, you don't have to know how to do this. We'll put a tool into your hand that literally will walk you through how to have a conversation with your spouse about your marriage. And it's all designed to strengthen the health of your marriage and to strengthen your walk with Christ and to help, help you seek the things above as a married couple. And we'll share more of that in the next few weeks and months. And then near the end of the year, in November, we're going to have a home front conference that will be focused on making Christ the center of your life, your marriage, your parenting, and your singleness. Okay, so even if you're a single person, you say, I don't have a spouse or children, is that for me? Yes, we will have a speaker come in and give a talk on how to make Christ the center in your singleness. That will be at the end of, of the year. And so your challenge today is to go to that website, moberly.org slash homefront, and to accept the challenge. And to say, by accepting the challenge, I am committing in a simple but intentional way in 2023 to seek the things above. And we'll encourage you throughout the year as you do this. And that's going to be our, our church-wide emphasis. We want to see neighborhoods and nations change, but folks, it begins at home and it begins with me. Amen? You've heard about how to start revival. Someone was once asked that question and they, this is the answer they gave. They said, go in your closet and draw a circle with some chalk. Step into that circle and say, God, bring revival to everything in this circle. It begins, it begins with me, and it begins at home. Let's seek the things above together. Amen? I invite you to stand, and I want to pray over us. Lord, it is so easy to be focused on the things of this earth 
the stuff of this world. It is so attractive. It's so easy to set our hearts and set our minds on worldly things. Lord, we pray that you would focus our attention on you, and particularly in the next year. Lord, I pray that many, many people would just accept that simple challenge to say we're going to prioritize our walk with God. We're going to follow hard after God. Lord, I pray that you would do something transformative in our midst, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.